This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Star Stuff. We have been especially excited for this episode for several weeks now because we have a very special guest. Dr. Alan Stern is joining us today. He is a planetary scientist, space program executive, aerospace consultant, and author. He leads NASA's approximately $900 million uh, New Horizons mission that has successfully explored the Pluto system and is now exploring the, uh, is it Cooper Belt? Alan? The Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt. <laughs> is that right? Kuiper? Yeah. Kuiper. He's a, a Dutch-American astronomer. And uh, apparently in uh, the Netherlands, that's how you say the word, Kuiper. Kuiper. Well, it's a lot cuter than I was pronouncing it. The Kuiper <laughs> Belt. Uh, the farthest exploration in the history of humankind. And we have a note here that Kevin lovingly added, you are almost as cool as Mr. Spock, which is very high praise. <laughs> that's actually um, for Cody's sake, because as a little kid, she, um, did you, you know, there was no restraining order, right? This is for you, Kev. <laughs> There's no official restraining order. I, I did send him a lot of um, fan mail. I was completely obsessed with him, still am. Um, and so I actually took that bio from your uh, your website. But Kevin um, is also joining us today. Kevin Schindler, our historian, and Haley Osborne, of course, our co-host for Star Stuff. Kevin, uh, can you expound on this um, introduction to Dr. Stern? Because there's, I mean, there's so much to cover, so it could take the full sure, 40 but, minutes. Well, but. I, think, I think we can encapsulate it all, but twice Alan has been named as one of Time Magazine's most influential people. Um, he's done virtually everything related to space and other. He has so many ties to Little Observatory also. Um, even a couple of years ago, as we were um, redoing the Pluto Telescope Dome, um, he donated a car as a fundraiser, which helped us raise money to, to refurbish the dome. Um, he also had the brilliant idea of creating a time capsule that we have in the dome right now to be opened when the first Pluto orbiter goes up, whenever that might be. Um, and, and Alan has also been instrumental as we've developed the iHeart Pluto Festival which we started in 2020 and we're doing annually, um, building up to the 100th anniversary of Pluto's discovery in 2030 and beyond. And so Al has been a really great um, spokesman for science, obviously a great scientist, a really great friend of, of Lowell Observatory. And we're just really pleased to have you involved and continue to be involved in all things Pluto and space and Lowell Observatory. And Alan, uh, did your the car, did that include the uh, bumper sticker that I've seen online? Yeah, that's exactly right. I drove <laughs> this little red two-seater sports car around the entire time the spacecraft was on its way to Pluto with the bumper sticker. And I thought somebody might uh, uh, want to make a substantial donation to Lowell to drive the car that the PI drove to Pluto, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that's what happened. So that worked out great for Lowell. I love this bumper sticker. Um, I saw, you know, I was watching a lot of your interviews leading up to ours, and that was one of my favorite things. I think it says, my other vehicle drove to Pluto. Is that right? Uh, there are two of them. One says, my oh. other vehicle is on its way to Pluto. Uh, 
And one right. says, my other vehicle explored Pluto. I love it so much. The first one became OBE. It wasn't my idea. I wish I could say it was. One of our uh, senior engineers on the project, Val Malder, had the idea. And I loved it. And it was it's, it's been popular, super popular. My first thought was that I wanted that bumper sticker. But of course, I don't have a vehicle that has explored Pluto. So I can't claim well, that accolade. If you want the bumper sticker, just have Kevin. Uh, I guess I send it to you at Lowell. So I could do that. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> Haley wants one too. I do. Yes. I just got a car this weekend, so that would be a great addition to it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, I have some in my bag right in front of me on the other side of this camera. We will we will have them sent. Amazing. I better write yeah. myself a note or I will forget. You have a lot of fans at Lowell Observatory. Um, when the educators got wind that you were agreed to be on this podcast, um, in, you know, we were soliciting questions. Are there any questions that you'd like to ask uh, Dr. Stern, most of them were just like, oh my gosh, can I meet him? He's amazing. I wouldn't even know what to ask him. How exciting. So it was really cool. Everyone's oh, very stoked. I was and just I there in November. Haley actually has a copy of your book with her to it's this right. podcast. <laughs> yeah. It actually, Maddie Harrington bought this for me. I don't know if you remember, but she sent you an email about uh, an educator you met who like got really excited meeting you. That That was me. Um, yeah. I remember that. Remember yeah. Maddie. yeah. So Kevin, um, can you launch off our discussion with our sure. first topic? Um, well, you know, we talked a little bit about Alan's backgrounds and everything he's done, and you might wonder what he hasn't done. And I think one big thing on the horizon is kind of a lifelong dream, and that's to go into space. And you're going to be doing that. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, it has been a uh, lifelong ambition of mine to uh, uh, to go to space, uh, and uh, uh, that came true in late 2020 when NASA selected me as the first researcher that they're funding to fly on a suborbital commercial suborbital mission on Virgin Galactic. I'll be flying on two flights, um, hopefully one late this year, and then the other very early, about a year from now, in early 2023. Uh, and the experiments are already built. And uh, once we get uh, a little closer, the training will start. I'm really looking forward to it. That's incredible. That so cool. <laughs> what's, the, what's the training like for that? Sounds terrifying to me, but... No, it's like, it's, it's like getting paid to go to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, usually people pay to go to Disneyland. Imagine getting paid. Um, um, uh, the training breaks into three different silos, if you will. Um, one is uh, the training around the um, the experience, so that you're acclimatized to the to what the experience will be like, and uh, and can be efficient to get your job done as a researcher. So that consists of training for the the high G loads on asset and entry, which we do in centrifuges, these whirly gig machines, and in high performance jets, like in Top Gun, that kind of jet. And then um, the zero gravity part we do in zero gravity airplanes. So that's the environmental training. And uh, I've completed all those courses. Uh, and we'll do some refreshers before I fly. The second piece is uh, training with my own gear, the 
astronomical experiment and the biomedical experiment, training both for how it should work and then for what we call off-nominal, what might go wrong and how you deal with that. And then finally, there's the integrated training of how the equipment works in the actual vehicle, how you stow it and unstow it and get it to the windows to collect the data, things like that. Um, that will come more towards the end in a Virgin Galactic simulator or spacecraft um, shortly before I fly. And as I said, there'll be two flights. The first flight is uh, largely what we call a risk reduction flight, which is to fly with a simulator of the instrument um, to get used to actually have a space flight under your belt before, under the pressure of time, I need to actually get the goods and collect all the right data in a one-shot suborbital mission. Um, that'll come probably at the end of this year or early next. That's a simulated experience? No, it's the real thing. Wow. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. You uh, kind of briefly mentioned that you were going to be doing experiments there. Uh, what what kind of experiments are, are we talking about? Great question, Haley. There are two. Um, the one that runs in the background is that I'll be wearing a biomedical harness that measures my um, blood pressure and respiration rate as a function of time from the moment I put it on as we suit up for flight until I take it off after the flight. And the idea is to um, get um, get some data on what it's like, not for a tourist or a pilot, but for a researcher. And um, hopefully, our ambition is that this will fly a lot of times with many different researchers and with researchers on successive flights. So we see not only how different people with different health histories, different ages, different genders respond during the time they're getting work done as a researcher to spaceflight. But we'll also see if maybe your heart goes pitter-patter a little faster the first time or two than after you've flown many flights. So, uh, so I'll be wearing that biomedical harness. It's actually a space shuttle biomedical harness, which I've worn on uh, F-104 and uh, F-18 flights on a number of um, uh, previous occasions as training. Um, and then the main experiment is to find out how good the windows are optically in Spaceship Two to, to, to do um, astronomy. And the, the real world aspect of that is, is that while you could calculate the window transmission from the materials they're made of, um, you really can't tell what all the glints and and other real-world effects, like what kind of films get deposited on the window during the rocket motor firing, things like that, without actually going there and doing it. So uh, I have a, uh, an imaging experiment that I was principal investigator of that flew on the space shuttle several times. And we're bringing that um, already proven space shuttle gear along on Virgin Galactic and looking at some of the same targets in the sky so we can compare the data sets to see how well the Virgin Galactic windows do compared to space shuttle windows. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm sure you'd have to schedule some time uh, when you first get out there to just be in awe of seeing the world from that view. Yeah, that's what the first flight is about, is to get, get used to the awe business so that yeah. I can get down to business on the second flight. <laughs> yeah. I'd say that pale blue dot, but I guess from that view, uh, you'll have quite the... Yeah front row to an incredible earth show of course it won't be a dot from uh from this altitude it'll be a pale blue panorama yeah <laughs> amazing um and 
aside from the obvious that your um, your research speaks for itself, but um, can you just put in words um, how you were chosen for this project specifically for these experiments? Well, it was it was a, actually you know we're in the 21st century now, and uh, NASA announced that um, it was ready to start flying researchers, and uh, that uh, researchers that met certain criteria could just propose and they would conduct a peer review and select the proposals that were on top. And I got selected. It's really exciting. In addition to uh, space flight, what else are you looking forward to down the road? Hallie's Comet in 2061. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. I want to see Hallie's Comet for the second time. That That's a goal. Um, but, uh, but New Horizons has, we'll talk about New Horizons. It has a lot in store. Uh, the Lucy mission and the Europa Clipper mission, both of which I'm on, um, are uh, going to be very exciting scientifically um, across the 2020s and into the 2030s. Uh, I'm looking forward to some new missions I'm getting involved in and hopefully doing more space flight. I didn't know you were on the uh, Europa Clipper mission, so that's pretty cool. I am. I'm on the ultraviolet spectrometer team um, at the uh, Southwest Research Institute, uh, where I work. Um, uh, I started a program a while back now uh, to uh, to bring Southwest Research into the world of flying space ultraviolet spectrometers. And at that time, there were a lot of seriously established institutions that were already doing that. But we broke in, and uh, the first of those instruments um, which I was principal investigator for, was one of the U.S. instruments, the NASA instruments, on the Rosetta Comet Orbiter mission. And then we flew another one on New Horizons and another one on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And although Rosetta's finished now, new, the New Horizons spectrometer and the LRO, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spectrometers, are still operating and collecting good data in flight all the time. Um, since then, we've also been selected to fly several others, which I'm not principal investigator for because I've gone on to do other things. Um, but I am on the science teams for some of those, including the Europa Clipper spectrometer, which just now finishing its um, post-build calibration and which will go out to JPL to meet the spacecraft um, in the next few weeks. That's awesome. <laughs> Alan, you mentioned the Lucy mission, and that's something that we're um, quite interested in this year because it just launched recently. Uh, there are some Flagstaff scientists involved, including Lowell's Will Grundy. And in fact, for the main event for the iHeart Pluto Festival, you'll be joining a panel that includes um, the discoverer of Lucy the Fossil, Don Johansson, and one of your colleagues, Kathy Olkin, who's involved in the Lucy mission. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that mission and your part in it. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, Lucy um, is a space mission in the NASA Discovery Program. And as you said, Kevin, it just launched in October. It's on its way to make the very first exploration of uh, a population of very primitive, from the birth of the solar system, asteroids called Jovian Trojans that orbit in halo orbits on either side of Jupiter. And they move with Jupiter around its orbit. And these are objects that um, were formed at the very birth of the solar system, possibly even before the Earth formed. Um, and we believe because they've been kept in deep freeze, like Kuiper Belt objects that New Horizons has explored, 
they're the other piece of the puzzle to understanding the the origin of planets through uh, their seed objects called planetesimals. Um, and my role is one of the uh, 20-something on the science team. And uh, uh, like Will Grundy there at Lowell, uh, I'm looking forward to this set of flybys. This mission is actually going to visit eight different objects in the Jovian Trojan swarms. We've never been to any, and when Lucy's done, we will have been to eight. So very ambitious mission. Spacecraft's in uh, spectacular health. Um, we've got a little bit of a solar array problem on one side, one of the two solar arrays, which we're working through. But otherwise, um, we couldn't have asked for a better launch um, or a better spacecraft. And we have three beautifully operating instruments as planned. Um, and uh, we're on course. The next big event for Lucy is an Earth Gravity Assist flyby coming up in October on the first anniversary of our launch, which will take us much farther out into the solar system so that we can uh, go see those Trojans. Can you explain what it will be like going through the Trojan asteroids? Well, you mean other than like exciting? Exciting, chaotic, <laughs> nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, so like so the, the Trojans, as I was indicating with my hands, are in two clouds that one trails and one leads Jupiter's motion. And uh, uh, in the first Jovian Trojan cloud, we'll encounter half a dozen objects, and then we'll dive back to the sun and do another Earth gravity assist, and then we'll go to the second Jovian Trojan cloud a few years later and encounter at least two objects. And then if the mission is approved for an extended mission, we'll do more exploring of, um, of Trojans in the years in the mid-2030s after the prime mission is finished. What kind of uh, things are you expecting to see when, when you go out there? Well, we really are going, Haley, with our eyes wide open to see what we see. Um, no one's ever been to the Jovian Trojans. Um, if uh, the theory is correct, the theory of the origin of the solar system, I mean the mathematical computer models that predict how and where things form, these objects should be a lot, of, a lot like many of the ancient primitive Kuiper Belt objects. So we want to compare the geology and the composition and the evolution of these objects, which orbit much closer to the sun than the Kuiper Belt, Near Jupiter, down near Jupiter's orbit, to objects like Arakoth that New Horizons explored as the first Kuiper Belt object to ever be reconnoitered. Those are some grand names. <laughs> I love the naming. <laughs> Tom, you've mentioned a few missions, and you've been involved in, what, 30-some missions so far? Right at 30. And, and of course, you're most known for um, that one that went out to the little planet, New Horizons, that turned Pluto from a little dot into a new world. Um, you know, it's hard to, you've talked about this so much, and you've been working on this so long. This is what, what you became famous around the world for, I think, is leadership in making that happen. Um, it's now been a few years since that flyby and that exciting event in 2015. Um, after that time, what strikes you about New Horizons and your role in it? Oh, you know, that's a great question, Kevin, and there's no single answer to that because, you know, when I think about it, I think about how amazing it is what we were able to do and accomplish um, that we really wanted as an underdog team. And uh, and we pulled the whole project off on cost, on budget, on time, 
um, and it worked flawlessly. Um, I think a lot about how it's revolutionized our knowledge um, of the Kuiper Belt, of the Pluto system, of dwarf planets in general, um, how it all worked out um, from both a technical and a scientific standpoint as being um, even more than we expected it would be. Um, but the third pillar, you know, when you ask me very generally a question like yours, it really is how it has inspired people around the world, young and old, um, not just to science, but just to think about how we can do things that are larger than life in our own time and how we can just regular people who work together can um, accomplish something larger than life and really make a difference, add to the storehouse of human knowledge, um, advance science and um, inspire uh, kids to STEM careers, which is very important for our economy, and inspire people around the world um, about uh, what space exploration can do and the good that it can create on the Earth by inspiring people um, to be proud of our species and proud of our time and uh, to study hard things so that the next generation of scientists and engineers can come and invent the next step on the road to Star Trek. Yes, that is my goal. <laughs> In your book, Chasing New Horizons, we have captured the excitement and drama um, in overcoming obstacles of sending the spacecraft to Pluto. And at the end, you were talking about, in talking about the inspiration, um, about a mother who came up to you and was telling about her son who became inspired by New Horizons. Yeah. Maybe you could tell that story. I love that story, and I'm glad we put it in the book. Um, about uh, six months after the flyby of, of, of Pluto, I was giving a talk uh, at a uh, convention down in Florida. And after the talk, um, uh, the organizers of the conference had set up a line um, where people could come by and visit and talk for a few minutes. And it was a very long line. I was there for an hour and a half. And every minute or so, it'd be someone new, long line. And about halfway through this, after about 40 minutes, um, a middle-aged woman appeared and um, stepped up to me in tears, uh, which surprised me, and, and said, um, I have to tell you, you and your mission um, saved my son. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, um, my son was the worst slacker, the worst student, the least motivated, um, the most directionless kid you ever met. Um, he was in danger of really failing as a teenager to, to go on to the next stage in his life. And he watched that flyby of Pluto and said to me, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And she said, it's been six months and now he's making straight A's. And she was just crying and holding my hand. And she said, you saved my son. And it really made a huge impact on me because I never thought, and I think most of us who are scientists and engineers who work on things like New Horizons, we think about the advance in knowledge and we think about the good that it can do in many ways, but we never thought that we would impact people in ways like that, that we could really change someone's life uh, for the better, just by doing what we do for a living. Um, and I've never forgotten that, that moment with her and, uh, and, and her story 
and I, I could tell you many others like it one way or another. Um, um, and I'm just convinced that space exploration rises above many other pursuits in being inspirational. And uh, as, as we said in the book, um, uh, that may be the most important lesson of New Horizons, more than the science, more than the, more than the national or humanistic accomplishment, just the discovery of how it can motivate people and change their lives. You know, I love it in another way because you're, you're kind of passing it down because you were inspired by the Alan Shepherds and Neil Armstrongs to go into space science. And now you're inspiring future generations and hopefully he'll inspire future generations. It's true. And I remember when we did the flyby of Erkoth, the first Kuiper Belt object, which we flew by on January 1st, 2019. Um, the next morning, um, a woman in Germany sent me a picture of her then seven-year-old son watching me in a press conference on the big screen TV at their house um, and just staring at the TV wrapped in attention about what we had done. And that picture really set me back because I remember being that little kid staring at the TV, you know, in the early space program days at, uh, the the adults and explorers of that era. And it was a complete turning of the tables for me to think that I was on the other side of that equation now and that I was somehow involved in something that could inspire little kids in the year mm -hmm. 2019. Wow. Based on all of the educators that I've spoken with about even just this interview, I can say with confidence that you've inspired a lot of the educators even here in Flagstaff at Lowell. Well, I'm inspired by educators. Uh, uh, they create the future. I think most people don't even understand um, how fundamental their role is to, uh, to everything that's coming. Because if we don't train and, and inspire children, then where's our society going? And so uh, it's really a privilege and, and it's awe-inspiring to hear you say that, Gertie. Um, that I could have some small role in inspiring educators. Uh, I know, I know, in my own case, it was educators that, that turned me on to all of this. Um, I did have a question about the New Horizons mission, though, for you. Um, yeah. Is it true that you have a Guinness World Record for something that you put on New Horizons? Well, we have a number of Guinness World Records for New Horizons. You know, it's, it's the spacecraft that. Um, explored the farthest worlds in history as one example. It's the fastest spacecraft ever launched and still is as another example. But I believe we have a Guinness World Record for flying the ashes, some of the ashes, the remains of astronomer Clyde Tombaugh, uh, who, when he was at Lowell Observatory as a very uh, early career guy, discovered Pluto and essentially, although no one knew it then, he discovered the Kuiper Belt. Um, and so uh, before Clyde died, he had said to those of us that were working on the possibility of getting a mission to Pluto, you know, I'm never going to live to see this, but if it ever happens, I would love it if, if some of my cremains could fly, if there's a way to do that. And as we got close to launch and I, I, got, I was lucky enough to be in charge, I called up his widow, Patsy, and said, uh, Patsy, I remember Clyde saying this. And if a family still wants that, I'd like to find a way to make it happen. And we did. 
and uh, and we won a Guinness World Record for, you know, uh, flying uh, the remains of a human being for the first time, not only to Pluto and much farther than they had ever been sent, but on a trajectory that's leaving the solar system and on its way out into the galaxy. Gives me goosebumps. That is so cool. (laughs) Um, Those are all really cool things, but I was uh, specifically asking about a post stamp that you put on there. Yes, that's another Guinness record. Um, (laughs) What? Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch. Um, So uh, there's a story. Um, Back in 1991, way back in 1991, when... um, Voyager had just finished its work exploring the giant planets. The U.S. Postal Service decided to issue a set of stamps, nine of them, to commemorate the exploration of all the planets. And it had the first spacecraft to go to Mars, Mariner 4, and the first spacecraft to go to Venus, Mariner 2, and the first spacecraft to go to Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. And the Voyagers were heavily, you know, um, they were very prominent in that, of course. But at that time, no one was planning a mission to Pluto, and they issued a ninth stamp, and it said, Pluto not yet explored. So when it got close to time to launch New Horizons, and I knew we were going to go explore Pluto, um, I arranged to have one of those stamps put on the spacecraft, sort of as an in-your-face, take that, you know, (laughs) fly that stamp all the way to Pluto and cancel it, which we did. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, what's really interesting was that uh, uh, when we did the flyby in July of 2015, on the day of the flyby, we had thousands of people in uh, 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 in the room at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab where Mission Control is. And one of the VIPs that was there with no pre-coordination, I don't think we even knew she was there was the Postmaster General of the United States. <laughs> and she saw us hold up that Pluto Not Yet Explored stamp and tell this story, and then we crossed it out <laughs> because we had done it. And with her help, the U.S. Postal Service issued a new stamp in 2016 commemorating the exploration of Pluto by New Horizons. Oh, that's great. Which was very cool. Anyway, all that... Led to a Guinness World Record. <laughs> yeah, as educators, we we talk about that all the time in our tours. So that's that's really cool. Um, so uh, switching to a, a different topic, um, a question that I specifically mm-hmm. have for you. Um, if a young scientist such as myself were interested at working at NASA one day, what advice would you give me? Well, the standard advice, you know, is make good grades, work hard, you know, uh, uh, persist. Don't be afraid to apply if you get reapply if you get turned down. Um, and all that's good advice. But I want I would give you one other piece of advice, which I think actually is more, um, more central, and that is to find the very thing. And whether you're a scientist or an engineer, or you're good at Anything we can use in spaceflight, which is almost everything, right? At NASA, in the aerospace industry, we need people that can do the books, you know, the accounting. We need people that are great at legal contracts. We need people that are um, uh, 
great at coding. We need people that are great at math. We need people that are great at science. We need people that are great at public communications. Almost every skill set, I would say, find what you love, the thing that really inspires you and turns you on, and go do that. Because if you want to work at NASA, they're going to want to, they're going to want the top. They're going to want the very best. And the people who generally are the very best are the people that are inspired by what they do. And people who are inspired by what they do are generally people who do what they love. So find the thing that you love and, and the rest will take care of itself. And then if you get turned down the first time, like I did, apply again and again, if that's what it takes. And, uh, and then tell me and tell all of us how it worked out because there's so many hundreds and thousands of stories of people who aspired to want to work for NASA or SpaceX or somewhere else in the aerospace industry. And they didn't know how to do it as a kid or a teenager. They just knew that that was their, their beacon, their goal, their, their, their reason, uh, uh, to be career wise. And it's worked out thousands of different ways. And every time I hear one of these stories, uh, I'm so excited to hear how it worked out, how many different variations there are on it. As I said, the common thread is usually people who find what they love and excel at it. So that's my advice. Alan, if you didn't go into space studies, what would you have done? Be like a rock star or something to serve? <laughs> you know, I don't know what I would have done, Kevin. Um, uh, it, I, I, from the time I can remember, that's all mm -hmm. I ever wanted to do. And I remember teachers and 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 elders who said, you know, you really should think about other stuff. You know, it's like, you you know, maybe if you thought of other things, too, you might find something you liked even better. And and I was pretty much a kid with blinders on. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I've never looked back. And I just wish I could live to be 500 years old and be a part of this right up until Star Trek. <laughs> So we actually asked our audience on social media, you know, if they could ask you anything, what would they ask? And we got so many questions. Uh -oh. um, so I, yeah, <laughs> uh -oh. I picked my favorites. Um, one of them comes um, from Facebook from Jose. And he asks, um, he says, I'd be curious to hear Alan Stern elaborate on his definition of what a planet is. 2006 was a rough year for our Pluto lovers. <laughs> well, I could talk about that for a long time, but I promise. <laughs> I um, um, you know, um, I am a big fan of the geophysical planet definition, um, which, uh, which in words sort of encodes the mathematics of what, what, what really the hallmark of planethood is. Um, but without getting into the details of that, I want to go about this a different way and say um, the, the easiest way to decide what a planet is, is something I coined a term for called the Star Trek test. Oh, I love it already. <laughs> you know, every week on every Every uh, 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 Star Trek franchise, they go somewhere. And when they get there at the beginning of the episode, the viewfinder comes on on the bridge. 
And you as a television or movie audience know immediately if they're orbiting a planet or orbiting a star or orbiting an asteroid or maybe it's an alien spacecraft. You can tell right away. You don't need any math. You don't have to survey a solar system. You don't have to find out what else is around the object or what it's made of or any of its characteristics. You know right off the bat, probably within 500 milliseconds, that's a planet. And that's really about all it takes. And so the very best test, the simplest way to distinguish what's a planet and what's not is just to have a look. And you know, <laughs> and I call it the Star Trek test, and it works. It it does just as well as a bunch of egghead PhDs like me doing the math. <laughs> I love that, and I would say that Pluto is definitely a planet by those terms from the photos that New Horizons took. Um, I would look be? at that and say planet. <laughs> How could it not be? Yeah. We have a question from um, Jeff Gonea, who actually wrote a, a really good STEM booklet about Lowell Observatory and Pluto as a part of his Zach and Zoe adventure series, talking about like getting um, the younger generation interested in science. He's a great pioneer for that. And he will be at our Night of Discovery event for a book signing. And um, he, is, he loves your work. And he asks, um, Dr. Stern, what do you believe will be the next great discovery in our solar system? Wow. Then, you know, it's very hard to predict. It's one of the things I like best about planetary science is that um, the big discoveries often are unanticipated. And, and when we try and make predictions, we're usually wrong. You know, um, uh, this has been true across the decades of planetary exploration. So I remember when we were getting ready to fly New Horizons to Pluto, I was asked many times by the press what I wanted to predict we would find. And I said that I'm going to give you an answer. You may find it frustrating. Um, um, but based upon the littered history of incorrect predictions about first flybys of other planets, I would just say, uh, I don't know exactly what we'll find, but I'll promise you it'll be this, something wonderful. And that's what worked out. In fact, it more than worked out. Um, uh, as far as what's going to happen next in planetary science, who knows? Um, but the big thrusts these days have to do with the origin of the solar system, um, the, uh, the origin of life and the variety of abodes where it can exist in our solar system. And um, I suspect that the biggest discoveries will come in one of those two areas. But precisely what they'll be, we'll have to see. It's one of the best things about science is that, is that we don't know what's next. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what breakthrough somebody's going to make, whether it's mathematical or in computer modeling or taking data from a telescope or what some new spacecraft is going to reveal that ties things together that we never understood before. And I think that's the best part. It's like this unending mystery novel, but it's high tech. That, it's um, like CSI on afterburners. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much because it's something um, 
that I feel like anyone, even if you're not a scientist, like you can identify with that excitement for the future, even if it's unknown. Well, totally. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't like unwrapping presents that you don't know what's inside? Yeah. That's that's science. That kind of leads into, um, you know, the last selected audience question from an Instagram user. Uh, In their Instagram username, I liked, it's Frenzied Star. Um, They want to know, uh, Dr. Stern, what is your inspiration for exploration into space? So. Well, uh, my ex, my my inspiration uh, was Apollo, mm-hmm. and being a little kid, a really little kid, and seeing uh, seeing these larger than life things happening that didn't fit, particularly at that time, um, and just realizing like the future can be so exciting, and how do I get to be a part of that? Um, that was my inspiration, and I hope that. You know, we're really on the cusp of an even more important era of space exploration now with private space flight, government space flight and private public partnerships and international competition, for example, with the Chinese and uh, a wide variety of companies competing with one another, um, both in human space flight and robotic space flight. Um, uh, and and then these tremendous applications that are coming along that are changing the way we live. You know, the early ones were like communication satellites and GPS, and now we're going to bring the internet to everybody on the world in the world. Um, and we're instrumenting the planet to understand um, uh, how it's changing and who the bad guys are when we're creating unwanted change. Um, and so many other applications are coming that I think, even though we get used to it as it happens, um, the the spaceflight world of 2040 and 2050 will be unrecognizable compared to today. And seeing that evolution over the next 20 or 30 years is going to make the past 20 or 30 years look like we were riding a trike. And now we're going to be in you know, jet fighters. It's really going to be exciting. And I just hope to all the people that are listening, um, that if they have any inclination at all to help us make this Star Trek future, that they get out there and play their role in it, whether it's in the public or as a professional. And if you're a student, um, uh, find the thing that you love, do great at it and come and join us and create this future. I'd also like to just put out there uh i mean dr stern has written just a he your your bibliography is is huge you've got you've got great books here uh where can we find your chasing new horizons um book where's the best place where we can buy that um well i'm very biased um my daughter kate owns tucson's oldest bookstore it's called antigone it's a okay. private bookstore on north fourth street and uh, go to their website or give Antigone a call. Or if you live in Tucson, walk in the front door and buy it there. Wonderful. Okay. You yeah, can we'll also find it all that. over on the web, but I want to put Antigone out there. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll share that link for sure for our listeners. And again, the iHeart Pluto Festival is celebrating the anniversary of Pluto's discovery at Loeb Observatory in 1930. And this will be the 92nd anniversary so we're, we're making our way toward the 100 years since that discovery. 
Um, and so we're pleased to have Dr. Stern join iHeartPluto again this year. And we're really looking forward to this panel discussion that the whole event runs from February 12th through 21st. And we'll kick it off with an art show and unveiling of our specialty uh, Pluto beer this year, which is Low Observatory Lager. But on the 18th, which is the, the night of discovery um, that Clyde Tumba discovered Pluto, we'll be meeting at the Orpheum Theater, where Clyde saw a movie the night he discovered Pluto. And Alan will be joining us virtually, but we'll also have as part of that panel in person, um, Don Johansson, um, astronaut Nancy Curry, Kathy Olkin, and Clyde Tumba's son, Olin. And just kind of like what you've been talking on today about the inspiration of science and the excitement of exploration, that's kind of the theme for that night. Why, why do we do science and why is it in our genes and our blood to do this? And so we're really excited to uh, offer IHR Pluto again and to have Dr. Stern as part of that. And I am so looking forward to it. I've been a part of, I think, four of these IHR Pluto festivals in the past, and they just get better every year. <laughs> I wish I could be there. I wasn't stuck on the East Coast with a trip to Washington, D.C. this time. Um, but I'm looking forward to coming back in future years if you'll have me. And we'll have you up on the big screen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to hear about the Virgin Galactic mission that you're going to go on. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely incredible, um, not only for you as a personal experience, but everything that that mission will inspire for all of the other generations that are looking up. We'll be looking up, you know, literally and figuratively at that mission. Cody, I appreciate it. Haley, it was great speaking with you too today. Yeah, it was really nice uh, to talk to you and Great. Well, you guys do good space work. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they do such a great job. I I know they inspire so many, just all the bright faces of all the little kids watching them give their presentations. It's great to see at Lowell. It's the best part of the job. So, um, This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. <laughs>